Welcome to the Make a Difference Podcast. I'm John Leary. I'm excited for our first interview. On this episode of the podcast, I'm talking with my friend and colleague, Les Francis. Les is a California native who has spent his entire career as a sought-after political operative and public affairs consultant. Les started his career with the California Teachers Association. He moved to Washington, D.C. to play an important role in the passage of the 26th Amendment, which gave 18-year-olds the right to vote. He then returned to San Jose, California to help elect his friend Norman Netta to the U.S. Congress. Les served as a chief of staff in the U.S. Congress, he held senior positions in the White House, and he served as executive director of the Democratic National Committee and the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. This conversation with Les ranges from his start in politics, to his work in the White House, to his pioneering use of political campaign tactics for public policy issues in the 80s, to his work in recent years on civic education in the United States. Again, welcome to the Make a Difference podcast. I hope you enjoy the conversation with Les Francis. Well, Les, thank you for uh, joining this uh, new podcast that's getting started here, talking about advocacy. I thought maybe it might make sense to sort of touch on on your background and and how you got started as a uh, as a political organizer. Um, opening, I talked about the you know the a little bit about your bio and and getting started with the CTA and your transition to Washington. Uh, maybe you could sort of provide provide a little bit of information about that. Okay, uh, I'm happy to do that, John. I'm- delighted to be part of this conversation. It's obviously timely and important. First of all, my, you know, without going into too much detail, my career in a sense, I never I never plotted out a career. And I always tell people, I don't think you can successfully plot out careers in politics because there are just too many variables and chance plays such a huge role in it. But my parents were, were politically aware and were responsible citizens. They were, I came from a Republican family. They participated in PTA and Dad's Club and Boy Scouts and Lions Club and all of that. They voted in every election. And I think, although they never lectured us on the point, there was a a sort of foundational principle that we have a responsibility to leave the world a better place than it was when we entered it. And that one of the ways you do that is as a responsible citizen. So that was sort of imbued in us. And then in school, especially uh, junior high school and high school, I did best in the social studies and worst in math and science. So I gravitated towards the study of history and civics and geography and whatnot. And I was was involved in student government in high school and to a little lesser extent in college. And I, I planned to be a social studies teacher. That was what I thought my career would, would lead to. And in college, I got active in the student teachers organization. This was in the mid-1960s when uh, there was so much turmoil in America around civil rights and the beginning of the anti-war movement, the student rights movement, the free speech movement at Berkeley. As I am fond of saying, if you if you don't understand and what happened in the 60s in America, you can't understand what's gone on since or even today. But it was a time of unbelievable turmoil. And the student movement was a big factor. And even even for those of us who were going to become teachers. And so so I was a student activist in that. 
and I was going to be, as I say, a social studies teacher, and, and instead I went to work for the California Teachers Association. After my graduate year, I got a credential, but I never taught. I was hired by CTA to run their student program statewide. Now we're into the period about 1967, 68, and we were interested in improving the quality of, well, we were interested in student rights generally. We were interested in education, our reform of our own education, which we thought was inadequate. So we were pushing for changes in the quality of teacher education. And we were caught up in the larger student movement itself. And that led eventually to the 18-year-old vote in the prior to the 26th Amendment's uh, passage in 1971, four states in the union had voting ages under 21. Georgia and um, I think Kentucky were 18, uh, Alaska was 19, and Hawaii was 20, and every other state was 21. So we got student CTA first embraced the 18-year-old vote. We then took it to CTA. They embraced it. We took it to the National Education Association in 1968 and got NEA to endorse the 18-year-old vote. And then NEA funded a campaign, a national campaign, to, to push the 18-year-old vote across the country in, in states and in Congress. And I was hired by NEA to run their part of the campaign and to help put together something called the Youth Franchise Coalition. And I worked uh, on that for most of 1969 and traveled the country lobbying for the 18-year-old vote, working on state ballot measures that were trying to lower the voting age in various states. And based on that, I concluded that, I think mistakenly, now that I think back on it, but I concluded that the best way, perhaps the only way to have an impact on public policy, including on issues like that, was to run for the, to be a legislator. So I I left uh, the 18-year-old vote effort as a full-time person, uh, continued to consult with them, but I came back to California and ran for the California legislature in a contested primary in 1970. Uh, there were seven candidates in the race, and as I say, I beat the hell out of the guy who came in seventh, and, and my days as a candidate were over. But in the process, I met a young rising star in San Jose politics, a member of the city council and vice mayor at the time, Norm Mineta. And Norm and I became immediate friends and I became sort of his uh, political aide de camp. And he ran for mayor and I helped him with that. And uh, he eventually ran for Congress. I helped him with that. But by that time, I'd gone back to work for CTA as an organizer in Orange County. So I would commute to San Jose for meetings with the Mineta kitchen cabinet and campaign operation and whatnot. He got elected to Congress and I went back to, to Washington for the second time to be his, we were called administrative assistants at the time, but basically his chief of staff. That uh, led to a chance encounter with the former governor of Georgia, Jimmy Carter, in 1975. I uh, met Carter, got a chance to talk to him, heard him speak, uh, was very impressed with him, saw that he was uh, talking about the issues that we knew from old briefings by Peter Hart and Pat Cadell, issues that were would resonate with the voters. So I became an early Carter supporter, volunteered on his 76 campaign, primary campaign in Pennsylvania, uh, worked at the convention for him. Uh, I was the whip of the California delegation at the 76 convention. Then I ran the field operation statewide in California for Carter in 76. And that led then 
eventually to a job in the White House and the re-election campaign in 1980, which, uh, so as I tell people, not only did I run for the assembly and come in sixth in a field of seven, I, I was a senior member of the campaign team and in fact had the title of campaign manager in the fall of 1980, the re-election campaign. So I'm responsible in some measure for an incumbent president losing 44 states in a re-election campaign. So I'm not sure anybody should listen to me about anything having to do with politics or campaigns, given that record. <laughs> but so during your during your time in the White House, you you were you worked in the congressional liaison shop and were sort of charged with moving President Carter's legislative priorities through Congress. So you probably got a, a pretty good insight into what took to move legislation. I mean, I, was was there anything during that period that sort of any kind of insight that you, you gained? Uh, yeah. Yeah, a lot. I mean, first of all, it, it 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 was a much different atmosphere than we see today. Congress was different. Relations with the between the executive and and legislative branches were different. Got to remember that Carter was elected in '76 on the heels of Watergate in Vietnam. Congress had started in about 1972-73 because of Vietnam and because of some of the excesses not the Watergate excesses, but other excesses of the Nixon administration, the impoundment of appropriated funds and whatnot. Congress had started to reassert itself as a co-equal branch of government. It had basically ceded more and more authority to the executive branch going back to the FDR days and the depression and whatnot. And sort of uh, executive prerogative sort of hit their peak under Nixon. And so Congress in the wake of Vietnam, Watergate, and these other things started to reassert itself as a co-equal branch of government. And into that, the sort of vortex of, of those dynamics came Jimmy Carter, who had been a governor, ran as an outsider, a Washington outsider. I mean, it was a, a truly a populist campaign, a term that's now used pretty loosely, but Carter was an insurgent populist candidate who ran against the Washington establishment and against the heretofore accepted ways of doing business. So at the same time, Congress is reasserting itself. You had a president who said, we're going we're gonna to do things differently. So that set up immediate institutional tensions and, and some difficult interpersonal dynamics. But even with that, we were able to achieve remarkable success legislatively. Many studies since have shown that Carter's record on successful passage of legislation rivaled LBJs in terms of uh, numbers and significance of legislation. We sometimes looked a little ugly in doing it, but the, the wins were there. And one of the things we did was we, well, two things. As a management tool, what we did was we set up task forces to devise the legislative strategies and execute the legislative strategies on every major legislative initiative of the president. If it was something that the president was going to spend his political capital on, those issues were managed by the White House through these task forces that represented the affected cabinet departments and, and White House uh, units, uh, press, public liaison, OMB, congressional liaison, so forth. So those that was a management tool. But we also, going to the topic of advocacy, utilized citizen participation a great deal. We would bring in delegations from around the country 
from key states and, and key congressional districts time after time, brief them at the White House, have a reception for them, they get to meet the president, get their picture taken, have him make a presentation, and then we'd send them up to Capitol Hill to lobby on behalf of the president's program. And we first did that successfully with the Panama Canal treaties, which were enormously controversial, high stakes battles. And so in addition to having people from the White House and the State Department and think tanks and uh, the military and all the rest of it, making the case on the Hill, we brought in people from around the country to do it and to put pressure on their senators uh, back home. And we did that in issue after issue, civil service reform, uh, National Energy Act, creation of the Department of Education, a whole list of major initiatives. And and the other thing we did was we we took the principle of of what we learn in political campaigns of targeting, right, of of undecided voters and solid voters and voters you're never going to get. Well, we applied that to Congress and we took we actually computerized the voting records of members of Congress so that we knew which members would be in the sort of the soft middle, the ones that needed to be worked on harder. If somebody was for us uh, or had voted right 10 out of 10 times, we didn't worry about them. If they voted against us 10 out of 10 times, we didn't spend much time on them. But if they were voting for us uh, or with us on these issues four, five, six times, then they got they got more attention. And we did that on eventually on every major piece of legislation so that we we knew who was persuadable and we worked it that way. So and then so you in leaving the White House, you then went to the campaign in 80 and obviously did not work out. Late late 79. I went over. uh, I become deputy chief of staff of the White House uh, in the summer of 79 when Carter reorganized his White House and cabinet. And uh, Hamilton Jordan was named chief of staff and he named me as one of his two deputies. And one of my responsibilities was to be the the point of contact between the White House and the reelection campaign. And once we knew that Senator Kennedy was gonna get in the race and we were gonna have a tough fight for renomination, Hamilton and the president, the vice president asked me to go over to the campaign and basically be the number two guy at the campaign. I ran the national field operation and, and coordinated headquarters operation scheduling and finance and delegate tracking and all that stuff. So I, I did that from the fall of 79 to the spring of 80. Then I moved over to the DNC as executive director to get ready for the fall campaign. And then our <clears throat> campaign manager, Tim Kraft, was hit with a, turned out to be a bogus drug charge, but uh, required him to take a leave of absence from the campaign in the fall. So I was named a campaign manager for the, the fall campaign in 1980. Interesting. So, and then upon leaving the the White House, I know you you were uh, continued involvement in Democratic politics and in working, uh, so running the convention in '84 for uh, Walter Mondale and being involved in the um, debates process in '88, and then of course where we met uh, as executive director of the DCCC during the 92 cycle. But so during the 80s, you, you had set up a, a consulting firm and began process of doing grassroots advocacy for clients and looking at the process of how involvement in advocacy has sort of grown. And many people look at sort of the early 1970s with new, new regulatory regime that got put in place with the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, and that sort of thing that sort of woke many businesses 
businesses uh, uh, thinking about, you know, the need to uh, not just have a trade association in Washington, but also have a, a company uh, representative in, in Washington who is looking out for their interests and not just not just playing defense, but then also thinking about, you know, using sort of the levers of government for, for uh, potentially offensive measures. And so as you started doing grassroots organizing in the 80s, you essentially were taking campaign tactics and applying them to public affairs and, and, and issue advocacy. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the, the, the more formative, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the campaigns in the 80s th- that you worked on. Your point is exactly right. What, ha- what happened was there were a handful of firms. Ours was one of them, uh, Matt Reese, uh, who had come out of Democratic politics, uh, national politics, had a firm, a couple others. And, and basically what we did was, and now, of course, it's a, a huge industry with hundreds of, of firms and thousands of people employed in it. But you're right. The idea was to take the known successful approaches to political campaigns and apply them to public affairs campaigns, to legislative, trying to affect the passage or blocking of legislation. So it included polling and, and voter contact and media, both earned and paid media and, and whatnot, to uh, inform voters and persuade voters and motivate voters to weigh in for or against uh, a particular issue. Our first big campaign in that regard, uh, I think Roll Call, a national journal, one of them called it a textbook example of grassroots uh, campaigns, was something we did for the Edison Electric Institute, which EEI represents the investor-owned utilities, electric utilities in, in the country. And there was an obscure provision in the law governing hydroelectric facilities. And and under the Federal Power Act, I think it was called, passed, I think, maybe in the 1930s, a utility, an investor-owned utility, uh, would get a license for 30 or 35 or 40 years to build and maintain and operate hydroelectric generating facilities and dams on rivers. But the law also said that at the time that the license expired, after 30 or 40 years, that a public utility, that is to say a utility that was owned by either a city or a county or some other public entity like the Sacramento Municipal Utility District or LA Water and Power or City of San Francisco, that those public utilities, if they wanted to, could exercise an option and they would be able to take over the hydro facility that had been built and operated by the investor-owned utilities for their depreciated value. So a, a dam or a generating plant that had cost millions of dollars to build and operate over a period of years would be had to be sold to a public utility at its depreciated value, which was, you know, after 40 years, like a buck 98. Investor-owned utilities wanted to change that, get rid of that provision, the preference provision in the Federal Power Act. And they hired us to make the case in key districts around the country, those districts where the members served on the subcommittee of the Commerce Committee oversaw utility issues. And many of those members came from districts where they'd never heard of hydroelectric generating. So we did we did focus groups. And interestingly, this is I always cite this as an example of why you need to do research. The the utility companies had had concluded and had been making the case on the hill 
that if these uh, hydroelectric facilities were taken out of their grid, out of their mix of power sources, and, and they were left to, to use coal and oil and nuclear primarily, that hydroelectric, which is cheap to produce, if you took that off the grid, then rates would go up for their repairs. And that had been the argument. It made sense. It was true. But we tested it in focus groups. And what we learned was when people heard the argument, they basically said, well, that's bullshit. The, the rates are always going to go up. But as the discussion ensued, the focus group participants came around to the issue of fairness. They basically said it wasn't fair that a company that had made these investments to build and operate these plants and maintain them should have them basically taken away from them. And it was a fairness argument. Now, whoever thought that you could use fairness as an argument in favor of giant investor-owned utilities. But it, in fact, was the argument that we used. It worked not only in districts where they knew about hydroelectric power, but in districts in Texas and Oklahoma where they never heard of it. And we were able to get the legislation out of the subcommittee and passed by the House and Congress and signed into law. Interestingly, the chairman of the House subcommittee at the time was Ed Markey of Massachusetts, who was no friend of the, he was a personal friend of mine, but he was no friend of the utility industry. But he came around and came to believe that the uh, preference was not a, not a good one. So that sort of became our model. And we did that then over the years for a great variety of clients. Continued to do a lot of work in the utility industry. Uh, but we also did it for the automobile industry and healthcare interest and others. So throughout this whole uh, field of grassroots that, you know, that in a sense has almost become an entire industry in and of itself, advocacy groups and, and in some cases industry associations and individual companies that are leveraging companies' case, their employees and their shareholders and you know, cl- customers or clients and vendors and that sort of thing. There's, there's always been, seems to me, sort of a continuum of legitimacy that where you have everything from, you know, authentic advocates that that feel very strongly about a, an issue and are willing to sort of run through a brick wall to to make it happen, and then you've got sort of astroturf on the other side. And from the standpoint of grassroots, it sort of seems like almost everything, largely because of the way many companies have operated. Uh, around some of the larger issues is sort of everything that has has been sort of painted as astroturf. Uh, everything's been sort of colored with that brush. Um, how did you focus on trying to get real authentic advocates versus just, uh, you know, they, it used to be that with the astroturf where people would send in postcards and they would get, you know, the, each member of Congress would have stacks and stacks of postcards leaned up against a wall and they would they measure your uh, sentiment based on the uh, height of the various postcards for and against uh, which seems seems rather silly in terms of and nowadays with with emails or tweets or that sort of thing it's almost you know takes as little effort to do something like that um how did you focus on getting, you know, sort of real advocates versus getting, you well, know? Well, it's, it's a good point. And I guess uh, I always sort of argued the term, uh, as, as, as you noted, uh, astroturf campaigns were, that term was obviously picked up because it was grassroots versus astroturf. So it was artificial versus real, right? The problem I have with that is astroturf, uh, in this sense, I mean, I, what is inauthentic about a 
either a corporation or a trade association or a membership group, be it AARP or you know somebody else, taking their case to the voters, explaining their case to the voters, getting the voters educated on their issue and energized around it, and then deployed to influence Congress. Yeah, it's manufactured, but that doesn't make it unreal. Those, those uh, voters are making up their own mind and they're coming to a conclusion. And how, and I asked obviously the question rhetorically, how is that different that when somebody decides they want to be an elected official, they go out and they organize a campaign and they do research and they do direct mail and television advertising and phone banks and they build a constituency that if it's successful, puts them in public office. How is that not again? Right. Yeah. No, I, I think I think that's a that's a great point. And I, I think, you know, the challenge is that they're, 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 with with so much of the discussion now focused on and uh, you and I have over the years have had this conversation that, you know, all the, the various new channels like Facebook and yes. Twitter yes. and that sort of thing that that, that you know, they provide a basically different tactics for communicating with people and perhaps educating and organizing. But that the the underlying purpose and the underlying underlying strategy is really the same. It's you're doing identification, you're doing education, you're doing organizing. Maybe I don't, John, let me just say, I don't want to leave the impression that I have a blase attitude about, about this because I, I just, I just, I, I'm making the point about astroturf versus grassroots. I have deep concerns over the effect of all of this on our representative democracy. I start with a belief that every interest, every non-criminal interest, okay, every industry or or constituency or has a right under the Constitution of the First Amendment to petition the government for redress agreements, right? I mean, so everybody has a right to counsel and to make their case and, and basically to have it perhaps regulated, but unimpeded, because that's, that's the nature of a representative democracy. It's something I learned, we all learned about reading VO Key and interest group politics. That, however, presupposes, and here's where I think we're seeing increasing problems in our society, in our civic institution, presupposes a citizenry that is prepared for citizenship uh, that has the knowledge, that can take in information from competing points of view and make a determination as to which side they align themselves with and, and are willing to support. And there's that, that presupposition about an informed citizenry, which was sort of Jefferson's ideal, you know, is subject to a real question, whether or not we have a, a knowledgeable and sophisticated enough citizenry that they can make intelligent decisions uh, and come down on one side or the other of an issue and i i worry about that um well, so, so i'd like to i'd like to drill down on that a little bit that's it seems that that and that's an area that i know you've you've got some experience with the you know this the, the, there, there are obviously many differences and and ways things have evolved that have 
uh, sort of led us to where we are right now with respect to some of the cultural differences with the Congress, the fact that, you know, many legislators now go home every weekend, whereas they used to live here and they used and, you know, raise their families in Washington, D.C. There's also, you know, some many other significant factors like the diffuse media landscape and this sort of notion of fake news and, you know, camp, the, the role campaign finance plays and the role gerrymandering plays and in, in, in who the actual members of Congress are, but all uh, it's, it sort of seems that every one of these issues, in addition to being able to decipher what what is, you know, what's what's legitimate, what's what a misrepresentation of 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 a of a given issue sort of all comes back to civic education. Maybe you could talk a little bit about where, you know, sort of where, where we are with respect to civic education. This is a, this has been a long time interest slash passion of mine, I guess maybe it goes back to my initial career objective of being a social studies teacher, right? So I've always been interested in it, but I've become more interested and more concerned over the past couple of decades or a little bit more uh, when I see low voter participation in critical elections, uh, when I see debates over public, important public issues being reduced to sound bites. Uh, we've seen the evolution of American political life, not just candidate campaigns, but ballot measures and public affairs campaigns, issue advocacy of the sort we're talking about now. Obviously, television was the advent of television and television advertising changed the nature of how our citizens get their information and and make decisions. More recently, uh, the digital world has has changed it even more drastically. And there's just so much evidence that that our citizenry is not educated enough to be able to handle that and to to deal with it intelligently. I don't have the the survey data at my fingertips, but uh, there was one survey uh, within the last couple of years that showed uh, that only a third of the adults surveyed citizen knew that there were three branches of government and and could name them another survey had people respond to items of the bill of rights and the majority rejected them thinking that it was propaganda the low level of again another some research that showed young adults a, a small minority of young adults could find iraq on a world map even during the height of the iraq war the fact that a huge percentage of people on the left, I think it was 40%, thought that George W. Bush had been complicit in the attacks of 9-11, and the same percentage of people on the right thought that Barack Obama had been born in Kenya. So you, you've, you've, you've got a, an ignorant populace. There's just no getting around it. And an ignorant populace is then much more subject to uh, being persuaded by misinformation, so-called fake news, demagoguery, so forth. And, and and I worry about, as you and I have talked in the past, I worry about the resiliency of our civic institutions to survive uh, these new means of citizen engagement, to be kind about it, if it's not predicated on a, a level of, of citizen knowledge and sophistication about how our institutions of government work or are supposed to work or about the issues at play and so forth. And I, I find it deeply troubling. I worry about it. This seems like a challenge that would be, you know, in a, in a sense, sort of easily addressed that there are, you know, there, there are basic 
fundamental knowledge that one could have or should have about the way the United States government works and, and that sort of thing. You know, there is a there's sort of an analog for other areas of, you know, education with with standardized testing to make sure they that people have particular pieces of information or bodies of knowledge. Why are we not focused on civic education as a as a society, do you think? Well, it, uh, there's a history here that uh, goes back probably 40 or 50 years for a couple reasons. Uh, well, first of all, there's, there's a larger question about and a controversial issue, obviously, is whether or not we're doing a good enough job educating our young people, period, right? Civic education and other things. Are we are we are we turning out people who can compete in a global economy at the level they need to to compete at? And you know, there's a lot of evidence to suggest we're falling short of that, and and uh, lots of reasons for that. A lot of resistance to doing anything about it. But on the topic of civic education alone, this this goes back probably to the 60s and 70s when uh, two things happened. One, talking about controversial issues in the classroom became unsafe for teachers politically unsafe because somebody usually on the far right would object to it saying that if you were being if you're talking about civil rights or environmental issues you were somehow engaged in propagandizing young people which sort of nonsense you got to be able to talk about these issues and think about it but it became risky for teachers to have uh, classroom discussions around around controversial subjects so they basically didn't do it or school boards ordered them not to and then they had financial squeezes. Uh, there was only so much money to, to devote to education and the, the belief that, uh, for example, that math and science were more important than uh, the soft sciences of history, civics, and economics, and so forth. So those two things sort of led to a, an erosion of civic education in our schools. It used to be that you had to take, in high school, you know, one year you had to take uh, geography and next year U.S. history or world history and then government. Now, many, many, many states don't have any requirement in civic. And why, and why is that? Are there, are, there, are there groups or are there people who are actively opposing uh, those sorts of requirements? Yeah, yeah. There are people who say that uh, they shouldn't be, you know, we should not be telling locals what local school districts what to do you know, leave decision making to the local level. If you're going to require it, you got to help pay for it. And states are reluctant to put the money into it. You mentioned standardized testing. Uh, you know, I spent five years as the vice president of the Educational Testing Service, so I have a obviously a point of view there. But with the teacher unions and other parts of the education establishment are against all testing. Uh, we're, we're involved in an effort here in California right now trying to get legislation passed that would set up a system of, of a, accountability and assessments in the social studies so that we can know how California kids are doing compared to the rest of the country and compared to what they need to know. And the union leadership told me in a meeting you cannot use the word assessment, period. Anything that has the word assessment in it, we're going to oppose. And we've even got to the point of trying to support a watered-down proposal of voluntary assessments, teacher-developed assessments, and the unions still fight us. So 
And, and the, the question of why? Well, because the unions don't want student performance in any way tracked and tied to teacher performance. They're scared to death of that kind of accountability. So, but they're just one factor. I mean, the, the, you still have the, the people on the, especially on the right, who don't want to have controversial subjects talked about in the schools. And on the left, you got this notion of safe zones, not physical safety, but you know, people, you don't want to make people uncomfortable, God forbid, talking about various topics. So there are political dynamics and cultural dynamics going on that, uh, that cut against us. But in the meantime, you know, we, we talk about in the civic education movement, we talk about three C's, college, career, and citizenship. Whereas most of the emphasis from people from like the Gates Foundation and, and other big players in education, it's on career and college readiness. And they forget the third C, that one of the, one of the foundational principles of public education going back to the late 17th century in America was to prepare people for citizenship. And we've gotten far, far away from that, from that mission. And we're, and we're paying a price for it. I mean, you can see it in our national politics. I mean, what's going on, and I'll, I'll keep this nonpartisan, but as, as you look at what's going on in Washington at the executive branch and legislative branch, dysfunctionality and, and whatnot. This this has been predicted, and it's a it's in part a direct consequence of the lack of a uh, a knowledgeable citizenry. Interesting. And with civic education, obviously, it's not something that can be corrected overnight either. So it's a uh, it's, a, exactly. it's a longer term enterprise. Um, it took us long, took us a long time to get in this mess, and it's going to take us a long time to get out of it. I'm not. I'm not sure we have the time, but it, it, it's going to take a while. From from the standpoint of you know sort of where what the, what the current environment is, and, and you know things don't happen by accident or just don't pop up. That generally speaking, things sort of evolve for a reason, and you know in some cases the reasons make sense, in some cases they don't. But th- that there is a a logic to them, and um, looking at sort of the public policymaking environment right now it's um you know it's it it seems to me it sort of ebbs and flows in terms of transparency and to the extent to which it is it's it's transactional kind of curious what your thoughts are right now you know how do you feel things uh in terms of public policymaking do you you feel like there's increase you know is there more transparency right now around how uh how major pieces of legislation or and, and major laws and regulations are getting enacted or less transparency? And, and do you have the sense that it's, it's uh, more or less transactional now than, than it has been? I'm not, I'm not sure it's more or less transactional. And, and uh, it's, it's interesting on the transparency issue with the multiple means of, of media. It's an interesting conundrum. There's more quote, information, end quote, and less understanding, which is, I don't know how you can do that, but we've managed to do that. More stuff available, more ways, more argumentation because of social media and so forth, but less understanding. Congress has become, in a sense, less transparent. Uh, I went to Washington, as I said, as Norman Edis, chief of staff after the 74 election when the post-Watergate and that class is an excellent new book out called The Class of 74 by John Lawrence talks about the 
the role of that huge class of new Democrats and congressional reform and making things more transparent. Uh, you know, the old adage that the best disinfectant is sunlight. By the way, I'm not so sure it's true, but the effort was to make things more transparent. The trouble is now, um, and this really started with Gingrich, the deals are being cut by the leadership. The, the normal committee process is not being used. You're not having hearings. So there's not, there's not the kind of public discussion we used to have around issues. And then, but I think much more important is the political polarization that's occurred in this country in the last uh, 20 or 30 years. The, the far right and the far left are much more hardened in their positions. Uh, when I worked for President Carter, I told you that we had kept track of votes on key issues. I not too long ago went back and looked at a memo that I had written to the president in, uh, I think it was in 1978. And at the time, we had gotten support from, we got support for the president's legislative program overall from Republicans in the in the range of around 40%. That is to say, 40% of uh, the time or the issues, Republicans were voting for President Carter's legislative program. And, and, and we had Democrats who were below 40%. They were conservative and you had some Republicans that were above 40% in their support for the president. But the average for Republicans around 40% support. In the Obama administration, that number would be close to zero. We know that uh, when you and I worked together at the DCCC, there were, in that cycle, 91, 92, at the high point, we had something like 130 or 135 house races that were winnable by either side. They were up for grabs. Because of the nature of gerrymandering and the way redistricting is now done, there may be in any given cycle, 40 or 50 contested House races. So the polarization, the political polarization, is a huge factor uh, in how our public policy decisions, if people get stuck in rigid positions, ideological positions, partisan positions, and are not looking for common ground to solve problems. And then, and then that is exacerbated on the right, where the 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 super right wing, the so-called Freedom Caucus, it's not just they don't believe in government, they don't believe in governing. So they're not interested in solving problems because they don't think government at the federal level has a role in solving problems. And then the way those districts, many in many cases, the way those districts are drawn, their, their only concern is someone coming at them from the right in a primary versus sure. in a general election. So... Uh, it's, you know, there's there's virtually no incentive for those number, you know, some number of members to ever exactly. sort of moderate on that. Well, it's it's obviously when you start thinking about challenges that we're facing, some of them really large and significant and systemic around civic education and, and some of these issues that, that, you know, we were fortunate that we've got some, some folks working on, like around uh, making sure that, you know, this next redistricting process is, is, is done 
um, in, a, in a more fair way and, and you know, sort of addressing the issue of gerrymandering. You know, I think it's easy for an American who's paying attention to despair uh, of, of the situation we're in right now. And particularly when it seems that, you know, sort of the news daily is, you know, it's a sort of going from one outrage to another in terms of provocation and, you know, the, you know, sort of tweets that are designed to, to tear at the fabric and the institutions uh, government and, and, you know, lead to lead to a, a level of incivility that it's difficult to, to frankly get anything done. I would go, I'd tweak it just a little bit further, John. It's hard for somebody who's aware not to despair. <laughs> and it's the, it's uh, it is not a pretty picture. I'm curious if you think from the standpoint of you know, effective advocacy, you know, they're, they're, they're sort of splitting up the sort of me versus we uh, approach, yeah. you know, is it, do, you, do you feel like there is a, an opportunity for folks who are advocates to make the case that there are, that there are shared interests that trump, you know, individual interests or, yeah. or sort of more parochial or provincial interests? Well, first of all, I'm, 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 I'm skeptical about the generational thing just because, again, looking at the research, uh, our millennials do not fare well when compared to other millennials in industrial democracies around the world. In fact, they fare quite poorly on just about every objective measure. So I'm not sure the answer is found. It's going to be found generationally. I do think there is one healthy thing that's happening, and that is that the fastest growing cohort in American politics are those who consider themselves independent. Both parties are losing market share to the independents. And the research that I've seen shows that those, now there are independents on the far left and there are independents on the far right, to be sure. But the bulk of the independents tend to be centrist. They tend to be pragmatic. They tend to be, by definition, less ideological. And the challenge is, obviously, people are independent for a reason, which, and it means that they are harder to organize because they are independent. So how you organize and mobilize them into a political force is a real challenge because they, they want to be independent. Uh, they don't want to be part of a political party or a, a rigid system. But, it, but it, it may be the thing that breaks down the partisan uh, divide is that if if legislators realize that the only way they can win re-election is to appeal to the pragmatic middle, that could help a lot. Right, right. Well, and I think doing doing away when I and I don't know exactly how it gets done, but doing away with things like the so-called Haster yeah. rule that says you know that you have to have a majority of your caucus supporting yeah. a position to to even to even consider it, to even discuss it on the floor, it seems like you know might might be a step in the right direction. Um, well, as, as as you know, having been involved in advocacy for your entire career, that it, it seems that the default position, generally speaking, is the status quo. And as you know from your yeah. your your days uh, running ballot measures, statewide ballot measures, that you know the the, the no position is always uh, the preferable position. If you if you have your choice of which one you want, people are more inclined to say no. They don't want to change. How how do you think the last year may have almost two years have have maybe scrambled that calculus? That's a great question. I'm not sure. I mean, uh, I mean Trump Trump's candidacy which was, and his presidency, his campaign was, and his presidency is, 
sort of the ultimate expression of nihilism, right? He he uh, he was the candidate of change in 2016, and Secretary Clinton was the candidate for the status quo. And in that case, change won. Well, it didn't. I mean, it it did not get a majority vote, but he is the president. But it was a it was an angry notion of change. It was a screw you kind of change. It was. Uh, uh, change based on uh, the notion of a zero-sum game, that if, if some group gets ahead, that it's got to come at the expense of some other group. Uh, so I don't know how that's going to translate in 2018 and 2020, uh, whether, I, I can't imagine that there's a lot of demand for maintaining the current status quo, right? The, the numbers about the country being going in the wrong direction, the dissatisfaction with Congress. I mean, Congress's approval ratings at about 12 percent. Uh, Trump's approval rating is, let's say, 40 percent, but that that is that is predicated on a hardcore support among Republicans, and it's a it's a, the Republicans are a minority party, so that you you look at. Trump's base looks to be about 25% of the electorate. That, that's the hardcore Trump people. Uh, the question is how many of the 75% who aren't in that are willing to step up and, and demand change? And we don't know that. We just don't know it. We'll know it November 7th, but we don't know it right now. Right, right. And to what extent business interests who are sort of telegraphing that they yeah. are going to get involved and in, in, in support Democrats and support uh you know, oppose those who who uh, you know are are advocating for and supporting tariffs and that sort of thing. That um, um, you, obviously you, that remains to be seen. That even the, even in the places where the tariffs are hurting people, like the farm community and and others, there there's a little bit of erosion of Trump support, but they. It just convinces me that the support for Trump was not about the kinds of issues that people think they're about. There was something else going on there, something not, not very, very nice. I mean, I think it was, I think it was uh, angry. I think a lot of it was around race. I think, uh, you know, just, just people flailing around, being angry, taking it out on, taking it out on everybody. Yeah. Uh, in some cases themselves. <laughs> in some cases themselves, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, interesting. Well, obviously, we'd probably spend an entire hour talking about almost any one of these individual sort of components of of, of these factors that, that affect advocacy. But uh, we've uh, taken up the, the time we've allotted for today. And thank you, uh, Les Francis, for your, your time and for uh, uh, sharing your, your insights on this. Thank you, John. Good talking to you.